In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. So if you're in a job that you hate, well, either change the job or get out of the job or change your mind or suffer. Suffer, you know, suffer is a noble choice. There's yeah. there's power in suffering, right? It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you, because when a man gets it, everybody wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army. We, we salute, salute you. you. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and as you heard the awkwardly synchronized uh, voices of uh, myself and Dale Culver, that was he's beautiful. in the audience, our producer and good friend Dale Culver. How you doing, my man? I wasn't awkward at all. I'm doing great. You live your life in awkward. Hey, uh, <laughs> how's life going? I haven't been with you for a couple weeks here, been on vacation. Yeah, I've been uh, playing in the sun, installing new windows in the house. It's been a blast. All right. Well, that yeah, sounds buddy. way better than what I was doing laying on a beach yeah, in Cabo. That would hey, suck. I know. <laughs> hey, I, I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, Robert's uh, written the book, and the this book... The title alone sets it apart. The title, it's one of those books where just the title sets the book apart. And I'm really excited about getting Robert on here and talking about his book. And And he and I come from different backgrounds and have a little bit different worldviews. But I think you're going to find uh, Robert refreshing and challenging. I'm really excited to bring him on in just a second. I think he's got some great stuff to offer from his book with our guys. Before we do that, do you have a man word? I do. If it's an, if it's if it's hidden, I'm going to kill you. Is uh, it hidden? No. Okay. Is it unhidden? No. Okay, go it ahead. It starts with un, though. Oh, yeah. Unbreakable. Oh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just going through. Uh, we're in the, the Trails End, Chapter 2. That's one of the books that we've written. Yes. And uh, we are going through that with our guys. And I believe that a man needs to be unbreakable because you're going to go through stuff in life that's tough. And you got to hang in there and ride out the waves. And, uh, it, you know, it's all relative for every guy, what they're going through. But uh, I, I think you can get through stuff uh, more than you think you can, and you just got to hang in there and not give up. Well, I think it's hard to be unbreakable if you live a hidden life. I think mm-hmm. an unhidden oh. life is an unbreakable life. Way so there you go. Segway. Like hey, it. do you have a, a shout-out on iTunes for us today? All right. Hey, from uh, 1307 Sick Boy, thanks for the shout-out. 
and uh, saying loving the podcast. Just started listening to it, and now he's got to go back to number one and binge while listen. <laughs> I would highly so, recommend stay away from one through one hundred. One was the best. It was a little rough. I set the pace, baby. I think I interviewed you. So, <laughs> yeah, it, like rough. I said, don't do it. Don't do it, man. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, I'm excited about. Hey, hey. First of all, we'll send him some swag. Yeah, so let us know who you us, are. Yep. Yep. And we'll take care of you guys. Uh, keep writing those reviews. Those really help us move up in the search engines and all that technical stuff I know nothing about. Right. So, hey, I'm excited today to bring my new friend on, Robert Candell. Robert's 48 years old. Are you 49 now, Robert, or still 48? 40, 49 at the moment. So. 49 at the moment. So we had the bio a, we, needs to be updated. Yep, I hear you. <laughs> hey, uh, he lives in Woodland Hills, California, and Robert is an interpersonal communication expert, speaker, has his own podcast called Tough Love. And he's the author of the best-selling book *Unhidden*, a man for a book for men and those confused by them. So, man, I, I love it, man. How you doing, Robert? I'm doing well. So glad to be back. Yeah, well, we we back meaning we already did this podcast one time before, but I was sick. I was in the middle of speaking season. I couldn't speak, and so we had to re-record. So, thanks for being gracious, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey, my we're pleasure. gonna we're gonna throw you into the rapid fire round here. Okay. And uh, I've picked uh, the word association round, so I've pulled words out of your book uh, okay. that I'm just going to ask you about, and just you explain them. Just go with the gut right here. Are you ready? Okay, ready. First word is freedom. Freedom is, I think, what all men want, all people want, and that's a very different term. Some people actually like to be enclosed. Babies like to be swaddled. You know, In relationship, we like the the container of it. So you can be free inside a container. So I'm not saying like, mm. you know, roaming, you know, roaming the earth, like a Ronin, you know, masterless samurai, you know, with no containers. No, some people that would drive me crazy. So it's, it's really just finding what freedom that part of you that feels like I can bring what's inside out to be the person I truly am rather than facades we tend to wear. Oh, that's really good, man. I'm going to ask you about that later about free inside of a container. Next word, authentic. Authentic is the path towards freedom. It is the really the content of who you are to to be true. And authentic is a is a very big buzzword out there today. And I think it's a great one because I think we're taught not to be authentic. I think we're taught to lie, withhold, uh, wear masks, only say things at the right times in the right place. And I think a lot of us are not living in our authenticity. Another way of saying it, really, you know, showing who we are on the inside. We're only showing a very small percentage of who we truly are. So to be authentic is to allow, to have the strength, to have the container, to have the belief that what's inside of you is beautiful and reveal it to your intimate friends. Oh, I like that. To your intimate friends. That was a good, that was good. Hey, next word, abundance. We, so the opposite of abundance is it's called scarcity. Scarcity is what we all know. Again, we live in a society of scarcity where <clears throat> we're taught that there's not enough. There's not enough love, time, energy, sex, relationships, not a good enough partner out there. We're just taught and we're taught scarcity to sell us stuff. <clears throat> you know, it's like you, you, you have to jump on it. You have to buy this in the next seven days or it'll be gone. Like the, <laughs> the society is really based on really do it now or you're going to lose out FOMO, all that. And I don't believe in it. I believe in abundance. It's like uh, this or something better. So in, in, like if I apply for a job and it doesn't work out or a gig, it doesn't work out, then I have this strong belief there's abundance out there that the better gig is right around the corner. And when you believe in abundance, you're able to see abundance. But most of us live in scarcity 
which means all we see is scarcity. So I encourage people to explore the concept of abundance. That's Well, I really like that in your book, Robert, because you talked about scarcity. Uh, another phrase that we use is poverty spirit or victim mentality. Would you, yeah. would you say those are the same, victim mentality versus a scarcity principle of life, or are they different in some ways? They're connected, but from my, my viewpoint, my lineage, different. Uh, the, I use the word victim to equate 0% responsibility. And I use the word villain to equate to 100% responsibility. And so villain-victim scale is definitely connected to abundance because the more you believe in abundance, the more villainous you'll be. And we can talk about why I use oh. the word villain. Yeah, the more villainous you can be um, and the more scarcity you tend to be safer and not come out as more and tend to be victimized or play less responsible in the world because so, then it's someone else's fault. So are you using the term villainous negatively or positively? Uh, I use it uh, neutral. Okay, explain. Okay, so if you think about it, uh, I believe in the concept of games. Uh, for a good education, read the book Finite and Infinite Games by James Kars. And that's really how I live my life, this concept of, playing being an infinite player playing to continue the game so in every game there has to be someone who starts the game the person to start the game is always the villain it's never batman starting the game it's always like the joker starting the game like batman's driving around gotham he's checked he's going in and out burger you know he's listening to tunes on the batmobile hanging around waiting for something to happen and then it really takes the person to start the game is the villain. Hmm. So they're actually the one willing to take 100% responsibility to shake up the status quo. Now, one thing I'll say is you can be a villain for you know, the greater good. You can be a villain for your own devices and you know everything in between. The point is that the villain to me is the one who starts the game. Interesting. So it's neutral in the fact that he can start the game positively. Like he could jump on and start a podcast called Tough Love, yeah, trying to impact the lives of men and those who are confused by them. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's good. I, I like. I've never heard that phrase. I really do appreciate that. So, last word. We're going to move into our uh, interview on the book, but the last word is unhidden. Unhidden is that point where all of you is revealed. That point where you're you're an open book and open hearted. You're just. There's no more defenses. Your facades are gone. It's just the pure you. Do I think this is possible? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think it's possible, you know? And to be honest, there's there's people who I don't show. Like, I'm only tell truth to my intimate friends. There's, there's, there's people who I know who are acquaintances or work people. They don't see my insides. They don't get to see that. I, of course, have a podcast where I reveal everything. But the point, like, you know, I have a choice about what I reveal to people. And so unhidden is a, is a direction. It's the compass. It's the mountain you want to climb. It's the rainbow you're chasing. It's, it's the direction you want to go. Because I believe that when you live unhidden, it is the most glorious place to live because then you no, have, no longer have to worry, how, what am I lying about? What am I hiding? Does this person really love me or do they love the story I presented? So unhidden to me is the holy grail of living a fluid, happy life. Well, I'll tell you, you hit the ball out of the park with the title of this book. I love it. Now, Unhidden, you, you've mentioned twice now, Intimate Friends. In my world, that's a that, that number is fairly small, three to six. In, yeah. What do you think it is in your world? 
three to six intimate. Um, I'm actually closer to eight to ten. I okay, think. okay, and then yeah. and then these intimate friends, you say it's impossible to be completely unhidden, which I agree with. Yeah. Do you find that you reveal certain things to certain people? In other words, your wife hears gets this side of you, but and even though you're unhidden to her as much as you can, you you reveal other things that could damage her to other intimate friends. Does this make sense? I my wife, I'm the most unhidden in my world to Morgan, my me, wife. Yeah, me too. Not to your wife, but to my wife. That's that's, that's well, you know, <laughs> Morgan's anyway. So like, yeah, it's, it's and that is really. Due to she's the person I know the best, I trust the most, the person I spend the most time with. She's the most curious person I've ever met, asking question after question after question after question and talking, talking. We, we, we're, we're like chatty Cathy's when we're together. We're just yeah. like, boom, and this happened, this happened. What do you think about that? Um, and so I think that's just a, a circumstance. Um, and with other friends, it's like, what do we have in common? You know, my friend Ken Blackman, uh, who I actually recommend for your show, uh, deals a lot with relationships and intimacy and jealousy. And so that's kind of how we talk about things. Uh, you know, different friends bring up different parts of ourselves. So it's not so much like I won't tell an intimate friend everything. It's just the universe is so vast. What are we actually talking about? I love that statement. Different friends bring up different things for us to tell. I think I hacked yeah. that to pieces, but I agree with you. I think that <laughs> we have different relationships. My wife has seen everything about me. I mean, my yeah. buddies have never seen me naked, thank God. You know, my wife has seen me on the most intimate of levels, and so I share the most yeah. intimate things with her. However, there are things that I share with other good buddies that I don't share with Shanna because maybe it could damage her, or maybe she may not understand it, uh, but I still want to be unhidden in all these aspects of life, so I really appreciate that. Hey, uh, let's do this, uh, uh, Robert. Let's take a couple minutes and just share uh, just some personal story tidbits about your life so our guys can get a, view, a good look into your life and your story hmm. well i the way i tell my story is i was normal till i was around 28 <laughs> and what i mean by normal was i was living the american dream i was living my father's path you know school uh college graduate school first job corporate america suit and tie uh, bought a house at 28 years old in san francisco which was no small wow feat. you know making Whoa. six figures um, yeah, the whole thing. I, I had the whole thing nailed. Like uh, from the outside, it looked pristine. Uh, what I was happening, you know, we bought a five-bedroom house in San Francisco to produce grandchildren, right? Not for children, but that was what I was supposed to do. Is I was supposed to produce male progeny uh, to carry on my family name. Uh, and I was climbing the corporate ladder at lightning speed. I had skill. I had personable and and et cetera, et cetera. The the dark side of it was that I was overweight. Um, I was a workaholic to the nth degree. I was working 70, 80 hours a week. Um, I was married to a, a woman I did not know, and our, we were passing each other. She was going to massage school. I was working all the time. Like, we barely saw each other. And I was really, any elements of who my belief system as a young man was really gone. Because I had, it's not even I had sold out. I had just followed the path I was supposed to follow yes. and had no idea there was another option. And then at 28, uh, Carol, uh, my first wife, said, uh, hey, do you want to go to Burning Man? And for those who don't know, Burning Man is this intense, amazing festival in the desert. Uh, back when I went in 1998, when the story takes place, there was a mere like 18,000 people you know, for a week. Mm -hmm. Now it's like 75,000, 80,000 yeah. people go for art and expression and drugs and sex and all these things. 
anyway, so I I didn't want to go. I'm like, that's that's for those other people. Those are the like the hippies and the 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 massage therapists and the doulas. And she's like, come on, please. And I was like, all right, we can go. And then when I got there, um, the most amazing thing happened. I got out of the car uh, in the twilight, and the winds were going over the hills, and there were drums and I could hear like electronic music in the distance and the words came to me you're home and i was like what and i was like you're home and i was like oh and this other part of me just arose this other part of me woke up and i actually had a better time at that burning man than she did i felt more comfortable Mm. there than carol did which was ironic and we had experiences uh came back to san francisco started doing workshops started getting involved uh you know starting exploring plant medicines and hallucinogenics and uh, really just expanding my mind. And then in 2004, started a company called One Taste with a woman named Nicole De Don, And we built it from a paper napkin sketch to an international eight-figure business where we taught about relationship, intimacy, sexuality, and communication. And it was amazing. And it you know took everything. It was everything to me. Um, and I taught over 10,000 students, over 400 workshops, coached thousands of people, wrote, spoke, the whole thing. And I was also the CFO, the COO, the CTO, and took out the trash. So <laughs> it was a life-dominating experience uh, that really affected my health. So in 2014, left, came to Venice Beach, California, opened up my own shop. And now I uh, published my first book. And I'm a fractional CFO on one side and also a life coach, podcast speaker on the other side. So it's a pretty been an amazing life. Wow. Well, I love, I think you said it on page three of your book. You said at the time, at the same time, I had not yet confronted the darker side of my life. Mm-hmm. I was overweight, distant from my wife, working an outrageous number of hours and missing and any semblance of personal purpose I had professed as a younger man. I was on autopilot, unconsciously following the roadmap I inherited. And that was that 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 led to your story uh, in uh, 2000. And you were 28 years old. So 1998, you said. Burning Man was 1998. And then I told the story in Unhidden. Uh, and that was a few days before my 29th birthday. OK. March 20th, 1999. And go ahead. So. So you have this experience, and then you you it was life altering. You wrote this book, uh, Unhidden, and the subtitle is a book for men and those confused by them. And I yep. thought, what a what a, a unique subtitle! Why why the book title and why the subtitle? Why did you put those two together? The the first draft of a book was based on my podcast. And what I did is I took my favorite 25, 30 episodes and transcribed them and turned them into English from my rant speak. And I had a manuscript of 50,000 words that uh, I thought was going to be the first book. The first title was Evolutionary Practices from Modern Times. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Good. Not bad. It's like a B minus sort of yeah. thing. And then I have a friend, uh, Kelly Notaris, who runs uh, her own agency called KN Literary Arts, where they help authors. And uh, she's a good friend of mine, long time. She knows me really well. And she read my uh, book proposal and she said, you know what? I don't really think this is the right book. I think, you know, this one line you have about how we hide behind optimized social media profiles. She says, I like that. And I think you should write a book called For Men. And I think you should call it Unhidden. So Kelly is actually the one to give credit to that came up because that's how I live my life is just promoting uh, being unhidden, being true. And then the subtitle 
you know, I had this big whiteboard and I, you know, I wrote diligently all throughout 2018 and I wrote down like 15 different subtitles, you know, a book for men was pretty solid. And then those who love them or those who want them or those who hate them. And like I went through the whole thing. And when I wrote a book for men and those confused by them, I was like, that's exactly what I do. So it was a really fun exercise. Yeah. Because I think people are out there. We see a lot of we see the vilification of men in society, and mm-hmm. rightly so. Uh, men probably are the cause of 80% of the world's problems. But I think there's a confusion out there. Men are confused about what it means to be a man. Women are confused yep. about the, the different roles that, that men play and, and or, yep. or why a man is absent. And so I love that term because it's, it's fairly um, ambivalent, yet mm-hmm. it, it creates curiosity like what is this going on and, and plus you draw the women into your story which i really do appreciate it so so what's the what, what what's the hypothesis of the book there's many hypotheses the book but here's the basic one yeah that the world is changing and the world are significantly changing from men and women and we don't know what to do about it we're all confused about who to be in this 21st century yeah and I did a lot of research. I read a lot of books and there's a lot of great books out there that do this better than I do. Basically, uh, there's a book called the end of men by Hannah Rosen, uh, man interrupted by Philip Zimbardo, um, the war against boys, Susanna Hoff Summers. Uh, I have, you know, in the book, actually there's a reading list and I read over a hundred books to help me write this book. And the thesis kept coming to me that the world is changing. And when I, when I looked at it, you could the patriarchy has been around for about 6000 years anywhere from 3500 to 4000 BCE depending on your the researcher you read so let's just say 6000 years the patriarchy has been around when you look at the evolution of the role of women you can go back to the suffrage movement which was 1848 you can go back to the uh, 19th Amendment, which was 1920, where women got to vote. You can go to the 1940s, where women were empowered in the World War II effort. Uh, then there was a deafening of it in the 50s and 60s. You can read um, The Feminine Mystique by, by Betty Friedan, who talks about how women were squashed in the 50s and 60s. And then the 60s came and everything got shooken up, as we all know. And uh, what happened was that uh, the school system significantly altered and this is a thesis in the 60s they started to create programs for girls uh, especially around the areas of stem science technology engineering and math and they started to empower girls i use girls deliberately of women under 18 to uh, to uh, excel in schooling and then they did not create any programs for boys they actually started to diminish schooling for boys mm-hmm. they started to take mm-hmm. away recess they started to be less math it just became more uncomfortable on the average for boys. And so when you look at it now in 2020, the schooling system is flipped. In the 1960s, 66% of the of academics was dominated by men. Now it's the total opposite, where 60 to 65% across the board from college to grad school are now women. Yep. Women are entering into the boardroom. Uh, the gender pay grade, which was 64 cents a woman's dollar in 1980, is now 93 cents yep. for millennial white women entering the workforce in 2012. So there's been this epic change of the dynamics between men and women. Women have risen up, men have stayed the same, and there's been disillusionment, what my author Michael Kimmel calls aggrieved entitlement. This, this 
stance that men have that where are the good old days and the scripts my fathers and grandfathers aren't working. And so men are, are listless. They're not excelling. They're, they're resting on their laurels rather than doing the work to keep up with the change in society. So the thesis of the book is like, come on, guys, this could be the best party ever. Like we're hanging out with women who are smart, sexually uh, empowered, uh, have their own money, are not reliant on you. Like this could be the best party of all time. But men aren't stepping up. And there's a lot of frustration between the genders. Yeah, I think men are really confused because men are so purpose or a, a term you like to use they're mission driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're confused more than feeling a sense of entitlement. I know that good old boy club is is a thing, but what I've seen also is that guys are just absent because they're confused, they've disengaged. Yeah. And, and I don't know and I don't know I think a lot of it too is these guys are we're being raised in a fatherless generation. Mm-hmm. And and they don't know what it looks like, which is why tough love, which is why men in the arena exist to help these guys understand. So I do I appreciate your work in that area. So you wrote, hey, on page one seventy or page seventy three of your book, you wrote and I want you to elaborate on this, Robert. You wrote, uh, a man who is unhidden is somewhat, quote, someone who is straightforward, vulnerable, and honest. That that man can seem like a breath of fresh air. Can you elaborate mm. on that? It's, people are so used to these polite, you know, facades that we wear. Like when I was in high school, uh, my TA or something wrote, you know, the jerks always get the girlfriends, right? Yeah. You know, I was a nice guy. I didn't get any girls when I, and again, I'm using girls deliberately. I didn't get any women attention or young lady attention when I was in high school. Cause I was a nice guy. I didn't want to break the rules. The jerks got the attention. They got the, you know, they got the attention of women. And I, when I analyzed it or when I read the article, this was, you know, 30, 40 years, 30 years ago. Um, it's because they're willing to be straightforward. They're willing to take a risk. They're willing to be a chance. Now, jerks gone too far is toxic. But there was a, there's just a way, if you're willing to actually say what's on your mind with approval, with connection, with rapport, with consent, with permission, then people are like, ah, finally a straight talker. I don't have to play this game. And if I'm honest with who I am, that invites the person I'm being intimate with to be honest and then all of a sudden, their intimacy entices my intimacy, and we have this upward spiral of actually saying what's on our mind rather than these polite little games that we've all been conditioned to play. Yeah, it's really interesting, the word jerks, because I was probably, would have probably been put in the camp you call jerks, mm. even though I was a straight-A student and I was a defender of the powerless and very, very anti-bullying on our school because I had a younger brother and sister. But I would probably be in the jerks camp versus... I don't know what the other camp would be. Would you would you call the other camp nerds? Nice nerds, N- nice, nice guys. guys. But here, what yeah. I'm what I'm listening to you speak, you're saying that this jerk camp had a freedom yep. that the other side didn't have. And I'm going back to earlier in your your in our podcast, you said something very powerful to me, Robert. You talked about being free while being inside of a container. And mm-hmm. and, I, and what I hear you saying is this this uh. I don't like the word nerds because I was a nerd, but I think this nice guy approach, you're in a container. You had a guy on your podcast that wrote a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Dr. Robert Glover. Yeah, yeah that was really good. Uh, but can you talk to me about this container motif and how for some it's bigger than others and how freedom fits into that? There's just certain personalities and certain people. You put them in a big, wide range and they're freaking out. They don't know what to do. 
you put other people inside, you know, relatively large and they're still feeling claustrophobic. So it's very customized. It's a lot based on heritage. It's a lot based on personality. It's a lot based on how you're raised, uh, how much freedom. Uh, there's things called attachment theory, uh, secure, insecure attachment. There's different levels. And so there's so many factors to this. But yeah, yeah. just rising above all the viewpoints, uh, there's, there's, I like being in a container. Like, so when I left One Taste in t- July 2014, I had been planning it for a year. I hadn't told anyone, but really it came sudden. Because they said, well, why don't you take a week off? And that week off turned into forever, right? I'm <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah. all right. So I go to Venice Beach, California, where I ended up. And I'm on vacation. I'm using quotes, you know, quote marks vacation. Yeah. And for me to decide what I wanted and for them to decide what they wanted with me. And then they offered me a second week. And halfway through the second week, they said, um, you know, if you are you done? And I was like, I'm done. Okay, great. So here I was after t- really 12 years of 90 hour weeks, 70 to 90 hours per week, teaching every single weekend, traveling nonstop, responsible. I, you know, I, I ran crews of up to 100 people at times. I ran conferences. Uh, I had, you know, money and I had nine different uh, cities I was, you know, responsible for. And so I was very used to a lot of pressure that I excelled at and sort of loved and sort of hated and sort of loved and sort of hated. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, after this you know, week and a half of being on, quote, vacation, um, they said, do you want to be done? And I was like, okay. And so I was left without a container. And it messed me up bad. Yeah. Like, even though I had planned for a year, I still wasn't used to, you know, my phone. We used, we used to get, you know, eight to th- 800 to 1,000 text messages a day. I would get three to 400 emails a day, not spam, real emails. So, wow. I, you know, it was just like a mayhem for, for 10 years. And all of a sudden I was, you know, sitting by myself in an Airbnb, uh, you know, watching Netflix, not knowing what to do with myself. So without the container, uh, I had to build my own container. I had to build my own process for me to feel free because the wide gap of it without it felt uh, terrifying. Well, and I and I I noticed when I was raising my children, we would when they would make mistakes, I would say your world is getting smaller. In other words, your container, your freedom. I think for the person struggling with addiction, they their world needs to be smaller because they're trying to work through that at the time. And I think some people can handle a bigger uh, container or more freedom. And I, I would call that I would call that boundaries. That we have yeah. boundaries. You know, the Bible has boundaries for for our freedom to mm-hmm. help us to understand, like, if you go outside of here, this could be damaging to you. And so I kind of mm-hmm. see it as having freedom within this 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 boundary, this, uh, you yeah. know, which I, I think can be healthy. Uh, it also can be a prison for some. Yeah. Have you, oh, how, yeah. how do you see it as a prison? Well, when you're out of agreement, agreement is power. So when you're in agreement with the situation, it's powerful. When you're out of agreement with it, it's prison. So my favorite example is the ocean. When you go to body surf with the ocean, if you fight the ocean, you're going to lose. You're, you're, the ocean's got Trump. Yeah. You know, you're, you're going down. You could actually die if you fight the ocean too yeah. much. You, know, you fight, you go undertow, et cetera, et cetera. But when you just turn your body, let's say 180 degrees and, and ride with the ocean, then your body surface, then you're having the most, most fun of your life is, you know, especially as a kid, it's like, woo, you're, saying that you're, you're riding the waves because you're in agreement with the ocean. We, we fight things 
and we exhaust ourselves. And once we surrender, once we get in agreement with the situation, then we can flow with it. And any part of your life, you can, there's three choices. You can get in agreement with the situation. You can get the situation in agreement with you, or you can lose. Those are the only three options. So if you're in a job that you hate, well, either change the job or get out of the job or change your mind or suffer. Suffer, you know, suffer is a noble choice. There's yeah. there's power in suffering, right? But it's really like every aspect. So when you think about prison, when you think about being inside a relationship or a job or a religion or or something, and if you're suffering, well, then, you know, do the energy to change. Hey, this situation's not good for me. This relationship is really toxic. Can we work on A, B, and C or get out of the relationship or be like, okay, like I'm going to check out this different part of myself to see or suffer. So it's, it's really just this choice that most people think they're choiceless, but the book talks about you have choice. That That's so powerful because we do have choices. We don't have to be a victim in our own story, but right. I, I love the, it almost felt poetic you know, that the only way to get around the ocean is to surrender to its power. Yeah. And there's power in this choice of surrendering to these forces that you can't control. Yes. That's really, hey, we're going to come back in just a second, Robert. We're going to hear from our sponsor. We'll be back right at you. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with a mission to help men become their best version and change their world. The war to change your world is epic. Every battle counts, and every man in the arena matters. Our closed Facebook forum for men, appropriately called Men in the Arena, is a great way for you to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Hey, because of my passion to see men get out of the bleachers into the arena, I want to offer a free resource to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Simply give us your email. We'll send you a PDF copy of the field guide. This is my 365-day bathroom book for men. It's a study of manly words in the Bible illustrated with great stories. This is a great resource for all of our arena men. Guys, you're going to love this book. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those in the anonymous bleachers pleading for you to get in the arena today? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. Hey, so on page seven of your book, you wrote this. Living unhidden begins with the mantra, it's not the circumstances, it's me, exclamation yeah. point. Which yeah. I, you put that exclamation point in there on purpose, buddy. I know I it. I did. Uh, then I did. on page 48, you wrote, to truly live unhidden, you must take 100% responsibility for your life. This goes back to what we were just talking about before the break, the power mm-hmm. of choice. So how does accepting responsibility for your choices, how does it help a man become his best version? So this, again, I want to just offer these as viewpoints because I am a 100% supporter of someone who wants to be victimized by life. Now, victimized by life has a very negative connotation, right? No one wants to be the victim, but sometimes, like the ocean, we do. We just want to be played by life. Like I have total respect for for men who work the nine-to-five job, go – you know, come home, have dinner with the the wife, play with the kids, pays his taxes, you know, uh, sets his life up, does it all over again, has his two weeks off. Like, like if that's what you want in life, then I'm a hundred percent yes to it. But, or, and if you're not in 
uh, thrilled acceptance, if you're not in thrilled um, uh, belief in you're living the, your exact life, then if you don't take responsibility to change it, that's where things get askew. And for 99% of the population, there's some part of their life that's not optimized. And I use that word really specifically, optimized, meaning there's a next level uh, that people want to live at. So when it comes down to it, it's it's willingness to say, okay, I'm not in the, I'm in the suboptimal position. Let's just say with my wife, I'm the suboptimal position with my wife. We're not having the sex we want. We don't spend a lot of time together. There feels to be a tension about it. Um, there's something going on. Regardless of who did this, you've co-created the situation. And to me, to live unhidden, you need to put energy in to communicating to your wife that you want to up-level your relationship. Hey, honey, um, we've been together for six years. I'm so grateful for everything we have. I love this about our life. I love that about our life. And there's parts that I feel not great about. And I want to let you know I feel responsible for co-creating this with you. And I want to take some time and energy, maybe some therapy. Maybe we could read some books or watch some YouTube videos. I want to put attention on our life. Are you interested? To me, that's it. That's taking responsibility. That's saying, hey, I'm not thrilled with the status quo. Can we work on it? And if the wife says, yes, you've got a partner in crime. If she says no, that's a communication where you can decide. And she says, maybe, then it's a call for more conversation about what that actually means. Well, and I go back to earlier in our podcast, we talked about men uh, being 80% of the problem and uh, and this uh, this phrase out there, which I hate, toxic masculinity. This goes back to men who are unwilling to accept that responsibility. And they yeah. displace the blame upon other people. Society, yeah. women, yep. that children, that child that they bore. Minorities. <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever. Other, co- other countries, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it, it really goes back to scarcity principle. Right. Instead of this, uh, I, I call it victor or victorious principle. I don't know what you what you call that in your book. Oh, pro- scarcity versus abundance. Right. Abundance principle. So I love it. Well, hey, so let, I want to go back to this, uh, and I think this was in your book, and I also heard the podcast with Dr. Robert Glover, and he wrote a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, in that, you quote, you say this, men fixing and caretaking, seeking approval from others, avoiding conflict, and believing they must repress their feelings. About that quote you wrote, men acting out the nice guy behaviors are anything but nice. I love that. Mm. Instead, they are dishonest, secretive, manipulative, and compartmentalized. Moreover, they are openly, deeply angry and frustrated, but push down these feelings in order to get along. And so what you're saying is this nice guy thing, these are guys that are, what I'm reading into this, they're they're unwilling to accept that responsibility that you just talked about. They're displacing it. Can you uh, elaborate? Man, I think, well, let's start it this way. Men want the attention of women. <laughs> it's, you know, unless you, you know, unless you're, that's not your sexual orientation, but even then there's just always been this pull yeah. for, for men and boys and young men to want the attention of women. More specifically, we want the approval of women. Approval is like our, our fuel, our gasoline. And we also live in an approval deficit society where it's very hard to get approval, especially from our partners. That's a whole different conversation. The point is we want approval. 
in order to do approval, then we wear masks that we perceive the women want without really understanding women, right? But we're still trying to like, we're, wear, we're wearing these boas, we're wearing these faces, we're, we're peacocking around and trying to get their attention. And uh, while we're doing that, if we're not in integrity of who we are, and most of the time we're not, then we're killing a part of ourselves. We're shrinking, we're adding cancerous cells to our own self-esteem by being something we, we aren't just to get the approval of women. And so what happens is men have this bile, this anger, and they tend to, instead of uh, processing their emotions, because we're not taught how to do that, we tend to push it down and we tend to, it turns to tend to anger. And then that's where you see like a guy is nice, nice, nice. And a woman says one thing or doesn't put out or something. And then they blow their top. That's their mask glowing up off their face. Like there's like uh, all of a sudden yeah. this part of them comes out. They've been pushed down, et cetera, et cetera. So the point is, is the ability to be integrated, to know yourself and to interact with an authentic, integrous way. Then if the woman rejects you, you're like, okay, that obviously wasn't the right thing, this or something better and wait for the right woman to show up. Well, you know what, Robert, it's interesting. I agree with you 100%. I think it's much deeper than that. I think it goes back even to our father. You mentioned uh, in our personal conversations your Jewish background and your uh, your father. And the, you actually mentioned this podcast about going down your father's path. Yeah. And the, in your book you wrote, men are ext- and I agree with this 100%. This is so powerful. That's why I'm quoting it. Men are external validation junkies, which yeah. creates the habit of constantly looking outside yourself for proof of your worth. And we do yeah. that by how many girls I can bang when I'm in high school, or we yep. do that with how many trophies I can earn as an adult in my career, or how many yep. how many emails I have to answer, or how many hours a week I work. You know, you talk about this in your old life. These are all validation things because nobody True. cares about the 300 emails. But, but we say that and we go, wow, I'm the guy. And yeah. so we're, we're external validation junkies, which I think is so powerful. How does this prevent us from living an unhidden life and, and experiencing the freedom that you write about in your book? Yeah. The way I talk about uh, external validation is sort of like betting your rent on a tech stock. <laughs> so like some tech stocks are in the money and you're like, woohoo, it tripled and quadrupled and I'm, I'm in the money. And then all of a sudden something happens and it goes down to zero. And all of a sudden you bet your, your rent, your housing on a tech stock. And I think that's how men really play with their own emotional being, their own self-esteem. We look externally. And the problem with looking externally is the external forces are very variable. As as we all know, women are not as linear as we are Correct, generally. For sure. And they they have uh, they have estrogen, they have uh, cycles, they have a very different way of living than we do. And so but what men do is be like, okay, I how good I am how the rightness of my life, the, I'm a good man because of external, my wife or my partner or the job is very risky yes. because those things can change or go away with a snap of the fingers. And so my own process has been to believe in myself first and foremost. My, my world, before even love of my wife, is built on my own self-esteem and my own self of validation. The foundation of my life is my strength in believing I am awesome. Then I don't depend on Morgan. Then I can tell more truth to Morgan. Then I can have a better relationship with Morgan because I can tell her the truth. And if she gets mad at me, she gets mad at me. 
but I, it doesn't threaten who I am. It doesn't threaten my foundation. So it's it's like backwards. We 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 place everything externally, then we can't really be ourselves. And so the process of building self-esteem and the twelve-step mantra I learned was self-esteem is built upon esteemable acts. Do the things in your life that have you feel good about yourself. Some examples for me is I I go to the gym, I tell the truth to Morgan, I'm integritous with my customers, uh, uh, I'm I'm. I'm the guy that will let other people in, you know, when we're driving, like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. You know, it's fine. Like I, that's the kind of guy I am. And that builds my self-esteem because I have the abundance to let other people in while we're driving. So the point is you need to find your own ways to build your own self-esteem. I like how you put those words together. You link those up. You said, I'm a man of abundance. And then you said, I'm not, you don't allow things to threaten your foundation. So a man of abundance, a man who is unhidden, generally speaking, does not allow things to threaten his foundation. And then in that I'm reading, when I read the word threaten or hear the word threaten, I'm thinking fear. How yep. does fear, and I, th- and I think of fear also in the desperate need to find external validation. How does fear play a negative role in a man living a free, unhidden life? Well, fear itself is not a bad thing. Correct. Fear to me is a communication. Fear gets a bad rap. But when I feel fear... You know, I, I'm like, oh, warning sign, warning sign, something's going on. You know, it's like the dog barking, ding, you know, or the clanging of the bell, that there's a fire somewhere. Okay, when I feel fear, it's something to pay attention. Fear run amok, fear without uh, connection, is that's where the toxicity can happen. And so uh, when you live in fear, and again, 12-step, false evidence appearing real, when you live inside fear, then you just see one small portion, the negative base of society, the negative impact or the negative consequence, maybe that's the best word, of the outcome. And you can't see all the other possibilities. So again, like be, you know, enjoy your fear, enjoy your pain, enjoy your anger. They're very valuable, but I would just say have balance with them. Mix the fear with op- uh, optimism. Mix the fear with possibility. Uh, when you when you balance the two, then you have a full mastery and the full vision of what's available. And from there, you can make the best optimized decision. Yeah, I, I liked your acrostic false evidence appearing real. So when I when I spoke about fear, I was thinking of the negative component of fear, because in your book you said that one unit of fear equals ten units of life. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was real powerful. Where'd you get that? <laughs> I was coaching a guy. Uh, he, I think he was in Germany and he was just this very nerdy, dorky guy <laughs> and sweetheart, but you know, just worked and I couldn't talk to women. It was, and I was just like, I was just like, buddy, like one unit of, and I have permission by the way, to use this okay. from him overtly, just so you know, I, I really, you know, it's important that my, my clients feel safe. But yeah, so I said, buddy, one unit of your fear is is equal to 10 units of life. If you can just move through this one unit of fear and go talk to that woman you've been obsessing about for a year, even if she rejects you, think how much life is going to be possible. Think about how much you're going to be getting out of your head and out of your theorizing of what the world is into actually living. And he did it. And he went on a date. <laughs> and you know, it didn't go very farther than that, but still he went on a date after you know living in his fear for all these years. And I just saw that fear keeps us really small. It's sort of like you put your car in neutral 
and then like move your body up back and forth and expect the car to move. No, no, you're just you're you're sitting in your fear, and so you can just put it into drive. You can start slow, five miles an hour, ten miles an hour. The point is, if you if you're willing to move through your fear, there's so much life available. If you're willing to move through your fear, there's so much life available. And you also said that fear keeps us really small. I go back to that yep. container thing, right? Yeah. So if I'm if I'm if I'm in prison to my fear, I can't move beyond it. And you know this as an entrepreneur. When we launched our organization, there was tremendous fear. But on the yeah. other side of it, there was exhilaration. I was in Cabo with some good friends last week and my wife as well. And they asked us this question, where do you see your life in five years? And I thought about the men in the arena as our, an organization. I thought, man, I have. No, I said, all I know, <laughs> you're going to appreciate this. I said, I'm going to ride that horse to the ground, and then I'm going to keep beating it <laughs> while it's down. We are riding that horse. And so what, I'm, what I was saying was we're committed to it even though it's scary and we're a nonprofit faith-based organization. So you know how hard those yep. are to run. And so yep. we're going to, we're going to just trust and we're going to go for it. But there's an exhilaration in that, that yep. those who get trapped or imprisoned to their own negative fear, they don't experience it. Right. And so that's, well, you know, like I, I was inside one taste, right. And I, I had it made for the rest of my life. Yes. Like I had community. I had, uh, sexuality. I had intimacy. I had friendships. I had purpose. Like I had it made. I was going to be the old guy in the wheelchair while everyone ran around. You know, like that was that was the vision. And then I got that opportunity to live the rest of my life, and it really fear rose. Like not just when I made the decision, but for a year after that, did I make the right choice? You know, I, I had so many viewpoints, but. I knew on the inside, if I spent another day out of integrity with myself, if I spent another day in my life not being who I was, like it was impacting me. I was forming an ulcer because I wasn't living truly to who I was. And so just saying yes, moving through that fear, my life is exponentially better. And, you know, one taste was amazing, but it's exponentially better because I'm living truly who I am uh, and I'm not basing my decisions based on fear. You know it's interesting. So you 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 had you didn't you start one taste? I did. Yeah. So here you are in this spot, we're in this space in your life where you realized this is no longer. I'm I'm putting words in your mouth here. So if I'm inaccurate, please call me out. Yeah. I'm no longer feeling a sense of mission or purpose to one taste. Yeah. And so I need to make a change. And when I was on your podcast, Robert, we talked about men and the sense of mission. And that a lot of men, uh, in fact, I would say you you used the phrase you used you said ninety nine percent of them, and I yep. would agree. It's like ninety nine percent get up every morning. Uh, they're yep. listening to this podcast as they drive to a job, yeah. And their sense of mission is not found in that job, but it's found in what they do afterwards. Maybe it's a, a volunteer area they volunteer in, or maybe it's going home to their family. I mean, what would you say to that guy that's going? 99% of those guys that are going to work every day but have lost a sense of mission and purpose, would you say it's fear? What would you say to those guys? Well, for some, they don't even know there's another possibility. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the most important. Um, like, they don't even know. I didn't know it was possible. I mean, that's what Burning Man was such a turning point for me. Like, I, I thought there was only one option. There was, you know, choose your own adventure. Like I had, I had picked my, my choice and I was going to end up this way. There was just going to, this is the way it's going to be. 
And then being at Burning Man showed me a different possibility. So any guy who's driving right now thinking I have to be this way, I would debate you on that. I would question that. It doesn't mean you have to to 180 degree change your life. I'm not saying like go to hedonism or shave your head and move to India. Like I'm not, (laughs) I'm not prescribing anything, but I am saying if you believe there's no other options, then that's being victimized. And to me, that's not the optimized life. If you're going to say, wow, I'm 40 pounds overweight and maybe it's time for me to change my diet. I'm going to try intermittent fasting, which I highly recommend. I'm going to go to the gym. Um, You know, I have an issue with porn. Okay, I'm going to study and research and the impact on porn. You know, my wife and I's sex life is pretty infrequent. Well, have you ever talked to her about it? Well, no, I don't know how to. Well, figure out how to talk to her. Like the old, the, the person with a foot on the brake is you. The person with the yeah. key to the prison, it's in your paw. Like open your damn hand and unlock yourself. And then it, it's scary. But would you rather live your less your life like this? So confront. And, you know, this is part of the book is like really just confront your life. And then from there, you can start to make uh, wiser, more authentic, integrous decisions. The key to the prison is in your hand. Guys, hey, we're running short on time right now. There's so much more I want to say to Robert, but I really appreciate you coming on our show, Robert. Uh, what action item would you give the guys listening to this podcast today? If you're wearing blinders, if you're wearing, like, if you know there's something you're not confronting, confront it. Like, just do it. And if you can't do it, ask an intimate friend, hey, do I, do I seem happy to you? Like, is there anything you like you recommend? If your friend won't do it, go talk to a therapist. If you can't afford a therapist, find a 12-step group. Go on the internet. Like, there's no excuses anymore for you not to confront. Be willing to check things out. Uh, read great books. You know, like, I don't want to brag about my book, but it's, it's a very easy read. It's very conversational. It's very supportive. There's a lot of approval in it. Just get some concepts of it. If not, you know, listen to podcasts or, or, or just find a mentor. There's so much possibility, but you have to confront it. It's the first step. You have to say, there's so much more I want to be, and this isn't it. Hey, Unhidden is a book of about forty-eight to 50,000 words. It's super easy. I read it in a couple hours. Guys, you'll connect to that. Guys, I do. Your action item this week is to talk to a friend. Ask them to reveal a blind spot you may have that you can step out of that, confront it, unlock the prison and become the man who you've been called to be so thanks robert for coming on the show man it was great having you you again and uh, god bless you brother thank you so much all right man hey guys did you know the men arena is a non-profit crowd-funded organization that exists to inspire men to become their best version because of a large group of generous donors like you we're able to offer absolutely free not only this podcast our weekly equipping blasts discussion forums plus our small group resources for missionaries in men in underdeveloped nations hey that's right guys if you're a missionary or if you live in an underdeveloped nation our resources are yours for the taking you can find out more about how to support our ministry at meninthearena.org until next time Feel the wet sand of the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Live unhidden. Grind it out. And be a man. This is Dale Culver, and you've been listening to the Men in the Arena podcast. If you hunger to be your best version, then join thousands of men from around the world on our closed Men in the Arena forum on Facebook. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of manhood. In our passion to help all arena men, we're offering an excellent free resource 
when you visit our homepage at meninarena.org. Simply give us your email and we'll send you a free PDF version of Jim's book for men called The Field Guide, a bathroom book for men. It's a daily study of manly words in the Bible and explained with great stories. Thank you for listening to this episode, the Men in the Arena podcast. This is Dale Culver signing off. Until next time, thank you for joining men in the arena from around the world who are becoming their best version. And remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.